0: I'm hoping you'll become more aware of those moments when a deeper part of you is prompting you to see things differently and maybe even go a new direction. So let's get started. Today, I'm excited to have a conversation with Dr. Jolie Hamilton, best-selling author, TEDx speaker, and certified sexuality educator. Jolie holds a doctorate in depth psychology from Pacifica Graduate Institute, where she studied the impact of jealousy on relationships. I love how Jolie describes her relationship coaching services as being for couples who color outside the lines, helping her clients experience the freedom, deep security, and sexual fulfillment that comes when they shift from plain old monogamy to more. Creating a loving relationship that fulfills the desire for both stability and sexual adventure is not something your run-of-the-mill couples counselors prepared or qualified to do. Whether it's polyamory, ethical non-monogamy, or creative monogamy, Jolie guides people out of the standard script and into the life individuals were meant to have. The impact of Jolie's approach is about more than relationships. It's about an individuation journey for all involved. The journey to becoming exactly who you were born to be, including as a lover. And Jolie and I were in the same cohort for our PhD program in depth psychology. I was drawn to Jolie's energy right away, perhaps because she's an even bigger oversharer than I am. The first Fifty Shades of Grey movie had come out and I had so many questions. You could always find a couple of students sitting around Jolie during lunch, asking questions that no one else in our lives could answer or explore with us. At the time, I was also having my own second sexual awakening, after divorcing the man I spent half my life with. Maybe it was my first sexual awakening, now that I think about it. We're not given the tools to learn to relate to our sexuality. And coming of age in the 1980s, where there was progress for women, but also a severe backlash, I adapted to fitting into masculine corporate systems. And at the same time, I did express my rebellion of other forms of convention when it came to sex and relationships. But without a framework, I felt confusion, for example, at men's response to my assertiveness when it came to sex. And I felt shame about other times when I was left feeling exploited. Decades later, I realized that one unconscious agenda for marrying my husband was to save me from the chaos of my sex and relationship experiences. I loved my husband, but I never felt the kind of passion I think I should have, that is until I divorced 24 years later and got swept up in a relationship with a younger man, 17 years younger. Of course, I probably couldn't have felt that kind of passion back then. There was purpose in my marriage though, and it did provide the stability I needed while I needed it. And then it became obvious that in order to grow, I needed it to end. That's when I began my individuation process, which involved coming into deeper relationship with my feminine, my body, my sexuality and something that transcends me, what some call God, what you could call the self or source or creative intelligence. So this topic of sexuality is personal for me, and you know how I love to create a safe space to have meaningful conversations about things that are awkward. So let's get started. Welcome Jolie, how is the start to your week going?
1: Well, the start to my week is going great, great because I am currently doing some physical building you know, that feeling you get when a long plan is coming to fruition, that's where I am like two and a half years of planning. And now there's concrete being poured, and it's so good.
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh. I feel like I'm in the same place, which kind of makes sense. You and I are not on the same journey, but parallels. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So, well, that's really exciting. So let's get started. Let's jump in. Um, I love how you describe how it all started, how you made mistakes, and your life was a hot mess, and like my approach, you hit the books. And so I'd like to start by you giving our listeners a little taste of your story and how you got to where you are now as a leading innovative thinker on relationships and sexuality with published articles in Vogue magazine, New York Times, and guest appearances on NPR.
1: Yeah. See, just hearing the list now, I'm like, wow, the work's working, the work's working. And it did start in a mess. I think that that owning that and having that be actually at the center of my own reason for continuing to do the work is key. Um, When I started studying relationships formally, it was because I didn't know what I was doing. I had left a marriage and it was very much out of the frying pan into the fire situation, which I think a lot of us experience, especially at midlife. But I was a little younger. I was 33 when I left. And I thought I still had that youthful optimism. It'll be fine. I found somebody I'm in love with and they were polyamorous, so it'll be fine. It was not fine. I didn't know how to do monogamy well. I didn't know how to do non-monogamy well. And so what happened was I carried all my personal baggage, all my shadow material that had been unreflected and a lack of skills at actually creating intentional relationships. I just carried that forward, as did my partner's. And hitting the books was the only way I love the way you put that. Yeah. Hitting the books was the only way I could find out of it because no amount of conversations, like just continuing to have the Mm. same conversation over and over, that wasn't going to get us there. We could spend 40 hours a week having that same conversation about what was this and who's feeling shamed and who's feeling bad and who's needing more. I needed something bigger. So I chose to study psychology because I thought, well, that's gotta help. Right. And it did. It just took a long time.
0: (laughs) So, uh, that leads me to the next question, which is really there's psychology and there's depth psychology. And we as depth psychologists bring an added lens to important topics and you are already doing psychology. You're already doing sex education work, but what called you or how did you find? Well, and we talk about being called to depth psychology, but you know what called you and then how hmm. did it confirm or add to your thinking and approach and maybe this is also where you want to talk about your research as well
1: yeah okay so i i needed to go back to school when i left my first husband i had four small children i joined a family that meant i all of a sudden had seven children and i didn't have the marketable skills that i needed i had run businesses throughout my life but i lost two businesses when i left my marriage so i needed I needed more degrees. I needed to have something more marketable so that I could be a breadwinner for my own family. Um, so I decided to go back and study psychology thinking, okay, well, you know, you're never going to be without work if you're a therapist and gosh, do we know that's true now? Mm -hmm. However, once I got in there and I was studying, I very quickly found that I did not fit in that standard model of today's therapy. Um, not that it was bad. It just didn't fit. It was like putting on a shoe that was a half size too small or maybe too narrow or something. And it was just off. Mm -hmm. And so I studied and I got that degree and I graduated beautifully and that was all fine. But that whole time I had this niggling that I needed something more. And the more kept showing up in every paper that I wrote, which seriously perturbed my very run of the mill standard psychology professors. Mm -hmm. Every paper I wrote was about sex, or about something to do with Carl Jung or some other depth psychological thinker, and they didn't know what to do with it because that didn't fit into the model. I wasn't quoting Skinner. I wasn't building a model based on you know CBT. I wasn't. I wasn't doing that, and it was irksome. However. I did really well. They also loved the papers and I got a lot of positive feedback. And that led me to listen to that little teeny voice. And I'm guessing that your listeners are the kind of people who understand that that little teeny voice is key. And the whole time, even though it made no sense at all, the whole time I was studying at this very regular university, Bay Path University in Western Massachusetts, I kept hearing the whisper that I needed to go West and I needed to study somewhere West Um, So I looked at a whole bunch of places in Hawaii and California that had distance programs, but Pacifica came up probably once a week for two years. Pacifica Mm, would just mm. come across my radar and I didn't know anybody there. So it seemed really strange. And then one day Jennifer Sillig showed up in New York city and I was like, she's in New York city. I'm going to find out. We literally got in the car that morning, threw our bags in and just drove. I met her and I was like, this is the answer. This is where I have to go. I have to go to a place where they take soul so seriously that it's just a, stu- a subject we study rather than something shoved off into the corner. And I really felt myself bloom when I decided that. That let me know as well. I asked Jennifer one question when I was there. Just one question was, can I keep my voice or will you make me change it? I was very worried about having to get that academic mm. voice that makes you unintelligible to the standard reader um, and hides. I find it to be so hiding. I wanted to talk about real things. I wanted to talk about jealousy. I wanted to talk about, well, honestly, so many things about growing up, about how do we grow up as grownups? Like, how do we keep growing up? I didn't want to lose it in a bunch of hmm, esoteric language. Yeah, I like some esoteric language, but I didn't want to lose it behind like a a shell of myself. And Pacifica was the perfect place to do that, to to let me be myself, to let me dig into the work of Jung and Hellman and so many others, and then create something new. And for me, the new was, well, since jealousy has been following me this whole time, (laughs) it turned out I was going to have to study jealousy. I literally tattooed it on my back. So of course, Of course, of course, I tattooed the kanji symbol for zeal (laughs) on the middle of my back the day I left my husband. (laughs) So and not Mm -hmm. without not with any foreknowledge about this. And, you know, I find myself at Pacifica. I'm sure you had a similar experience where you're like, oh, oh, there's not any escaping this. I have to go just like Mm -hmm. when you're in labor, you got to go through the fire. There's no turning around and going back the other way like that. The beautiful thing has been studying jealousy through a depth psychological lens has let me actually actively add to the literature. If I studied it from a cognitive behavioral lens, I'm not sure I would have gotten that, but I'm adding something new. And that, the feedback I get on that is really powerful.
0: I love it. Well, yes, I had the same kind of synchronistic event. I was sitting on the toilet looking at the back of a magazine and I saw the Pacifica logo and I was like... (gasps) What is that? But I have to have it. And I knew it was the solution to a problem that I hadn't even really articulated. And then your other moment about like what to study. And mm. I, you might remember that <laughs> I was sitting in. It's like, well, you, I'm not even sure if you were part of our cohort at the time, but so it was Susan Rowland's class. And we were, I was very shy and we were going around in a circle and sharing our ideas for writing a paper on that quarter. And the 50 shades of gray movie had just come out the movie from the first book. And I just, there was this energy around it. There was this energy around it. And I, it got to me and I was like, okay, do I tell the truth or not tell the truth? And mm-hmm. I did. And I said, i want to write about the 50 shades of gray phenomenon. And then I was like, I felt like I was like thrown out of the closet doing that. Cause I thought I'm supposed to write about something academic or educational or whatever. And I remember, um, Susan Roland, Dr. Roland saying, well, there's certainly energy around that. I, and it's <laughs> the right it. kind of energy. And I suggest you go there. So, you know, so I love this. Like you said, I love talking to other depth psychologists because it's about soul for us, really. So, um, okay. So to ease my listeners into what you're really passionate about, could you talk first about what you mean by creative monogamy? I think there's a huge need for couples who prefer monogamy, but are stuck in conventional thinking when it comes to intimacy. So in fact, recently, uh, I was working with a client and it was months had gone by great work, depth psychology work, and she brought up sex. And I think she was like nervous to bring it up and she and her husband are 30. They've got two young children. You know how that goes mm-hmm. and the pressure she felt to have literal sex that she wanted but the pressure like already took away the potential pleasure there was going to be before it even got started. Anyway, she was so excited that I was excited to talk about sex. Like she wasn't prepared for that. And our conversation focused on thinking about intimacy more broadly. And, you know, they were trapped in conventional thinking. They just, they needed someone else to kind of come in there and say, well, what if, you know, intimacy was this anyway, I'm curious about how you help people think differently about monogamy. And I love, I just love crea- the whole notion of creative monogamy.
1: Yeah. Thank you for asking about it because I think that this is the kind of conversation that anyone who's in any kind of monogamous relationship with any sort of commitment can, can bring home and like, it can take something from it. Mm-hmm. The concept of creative monogamy is really just that we, are, we want to get really clear on exactly what it is that we're agreeing to do exclusively in our relationships mm-hmm. and what we are doing expansively in our relationships. So as an example, um, many people think of monogamy as sexual exclusivity, right? I've decided that sex is going to be exclusive with this person many people never have conversations though about whether their financial situation will be perfectly exclusive or like all of a sudden you have a business partner now your financial system is tied to someone else Mm -hmm. in a a very specific way um a lot of times people don't think about what intimate friendships then how how are those tied to my monogamy Um, this whole notion of an emotional affair it's awfully similar to a friend right except Mm -hmm. it's connected to this idea that we might lose someone that we might lose influence Mm -hmm. that we might lose connection that our love bond might be interrupted so this is where creative monogamy the whole concept of it came became central to my work because I was dealing with people who were struggling with jealousy because they wanted that exclusivity they wanted to know that they were their partners one and only but they Mm -hmm. didn't really know how to ask for it and really craft an agreement that was, that was clear, that they both understood, and that they could enter into freely. Which means a lot of us, without even realizing it, are walking around in less than consensual relationships because we weren't actually mm. creating, co-creating an explicit agreement. And things can't be consensual unless we are freely able to agree to do things in an informed way And that we get specific about it. Like these are the qualities that make consensual love a real thing. So really, when we think about creative monogamy, we can just think, how do I want to create a relationship with a person with intention and integrity and with the right blend of exclusivity and expansiveness for us, knowing that because it was intentional, we'll also be able to renegotiate It's not just one thing Mm. over the course of a life. It may shift, it may change, but we've, we have the foundation that is here are our agreements and it's really delicious and it creates space for people to grow and change.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, I like the word delicious and just think about how many more relationships would actually last that are quality relationships. Because we all know people who have stayed married that you can tell they're not Fulfilled, but they yeah. had. They're sort of trapped, but they could be if only they had had a framework to have these kinds of conversations. And yeah. I also, I also love how you bring up um, friendship, because I was, I always had more male friends than mm-hmm. female friends, and we know that friendship between men and women is very threatening to not only spouses of our friends, but also patriarchy as a whole system, which Mm -hmm. makes them really important to figure out how to navigate, how to have, you know, you know, as a woman to have male friends. And I lost male friends when they got married and, and there was Mm -hmm. sexual energy, but they, it wasn't necessarily action on the sexual energy came from like common, common interests, for example, things that I couldn't talk with my husband with, or I could, but he was like exhausted by all hearing all of that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. He just wasn't interested, which which was
0: fine, but Mm -hmm. I needed to talk to somebody about it. And I actually felt like sexual energy by intellectual ideas. Right. Right. So it had nothing to do with like wanting to have sex, but there was like this arousing nature of having a friendship with, you know, someone of the opposite sex that wasn't about sex or relationship.
1: Right. So depth psychology gives us language to talk about this because we can say, just because I have erotic energy, I have Mm arrows, I have life force around someone doesn't mean that I am an animal who cannot control my behavior or that I have to concretize, that I have to literalize this act. So often, um, Thomas More has that wonderful quote, that conversation is the sex act of the soul, Mm. right? So frequently, when it comes to, especially heterosexual couples, then who have, who have attractions to people of the opposite Mm -hmm. gender, and then who have friendships, we start conflating conversation and sex, deep emotional connection and sex. And my question for everybody who struggles with this is, have you defined what sex is? Do you know what sex really is? Because I I talk in front of groups of hundreds of sex educators, and when I ask them, define sex for me, I do not get two identical answers in the whole room, and that's normal. There is no simple definition. So unless you dig into your relationship and decide what sex is, and therefore what's in bounds and what's Mm -hmm. out of bounds, right, then When you start talking about, oh, I feel threatened by the erotic energy between the two of you, yeah, you don't even know what the erotic energy is between you and your partner, most likely. And I totally get that because I didn't either. It took so much digging for me to start to really make this stuff clear to me and to figure out how to have the vocabulary to talk about it with my partner. And that's what builds the safety that lets us have complicated relationships that go beyond what's accepted by the patriarchy. And you're right. It's what we get. That's how we overthrow the system.
0: <laughs> right. And again, just think about how many relationships actually could be saved mm-hmm. when each person is allowed to sort of get these other needs met and they have a framework and tools to talk about. I say sexual energy. I love arrows. sexual energy as more than something that's literal, like it is, you know, it's lots of things. It's spiritual, it's intellectual. It's like, right. But we, you know, we are not given those tools and a framework to have that conversation, to understand our, what we are even, what we are even feeling. I mean, I, this is way before I was depth psychology, but I was very aware of becoming aroused by intellectual ideas like social justice. Mm-hmm. That was arousing to me, mm-hmm. and and I was confused by my own experience because, and I was alone. I wasn't hurting anybody, so I'm like, okay, I like feeling this way. <laughs> but it's really interesting that I'm, you know, feeling arousal because I just got done leaving my male friend, and we were talking about social justice issues.
1: And you could conflate that. Yes. you could easily mistake that for. I want this literal act of, you know, a, a penis in a vagina. We could like, we could get really, really concrete about it, or we could back off just a moment and say, Oh, I felt arousal. What is arousal, but energy, but Mm -hmm. energy exchange. And most importantly, this, I love this. Every time I feel arousal, if I remind myself, it belongs to me. Mm -hmm. That includes when I am having delicious, yummy sex with my partner, My arousal belongs to me. I may choose to share it with another, but my arousal is always mine. And centering yourself in that and getting connected deeply to what pleasure is in your body lets you deliteralize it and experience your arousal in seemingly unusual spaces and then just have more of it. So yay.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there's so much, and it is communication. It does come down to communication because it's either that feeling of, Arousal is conflated, like you said, and confuse, you know, and confuses you. Or when you said back off, it's because of shame. Yeah. It's because of like, oh, I, I can't feel that way. Right. And so, you know, you either may lean into it too much and mistakenly misunderstand the purpose of the arousal, which for you was about creativity and, and creating and inventing and that sort of thing, or you could feel shame because, oh my gosh, I'm feeling arousal for someone. And, oh, does that, what does that mean about what I feel for my husband? So like, I see those two possibilities, you know, happening and that, you know, what you're doing and, you know, what I'm doing is, you know, creating this space to explore that. There are so many other possibilities. right?
1: So frequently what I hear when I do a consult with people, especially in the first couple of sessions, I'll hear someone state a truth, a fact about how sexual connection works, or just a Mm. truth about how the, the sexual body works. Very rarely are these ever actual facts or truths. They're simply presumptions based on limited information that was gathered during their childhood, adolescence and early sexual upbringing and their early sexual experiences and then taken for granted, taken very literally and made fact. So for instance somebody saying, oh you know, men always want sex. Um, says who? Um, women are slow to orgasm. Says who? You know, based on what time scale. There's a million examples I could give, but when you said how many relationships could be saved, I think All the ones where people are willing to have complicated conversations and learn to relate Mm -hmm. to each other as they actually are, rather than as the the presentations that they put out because they're feeling shamed or -hmm. they're shaming themselves or they've internalized something, right? Any relationship where two people want to really meet, there's always a chance. There's always hope.
0: That's wonderful. I think this particular part is going to be really helpful to like the majority of people out there listening. So, now into the juicier stuff, like polyamory. Uh, the first part of my life was lived pretty conventionally, even though I didn't really want to be conventional and I tried my best to be a rebel along the way, but I kind of got trapped in convention anyway. Um, and it wasn't until after my divorce and a six month obsession with online dating, I was swept up by soul, by psyche. And this was after my divorce. I got really excited though, about exploring the nature of changing relationships. So what I said to myself was, and I had the benefit of being enrolled in depth psychology. So what I said to myself was, okay, I'm not looking for a permanent relationship. I know that there's purpose in every encounter I'm going to have, and I'm just going to explore. And I had to overcome things around boundaries and learn how to politely reject men I wasn't attracted to and all that kind of stuff. But I got really, really intrigued with my own experience. And for example, I dated one, I just call him yummy, yummy, younger man who was exploring his own sexuality. And I was just surprised about myself. I just wanted to make out with him for hours and hours. That's all I needed. And he like said he had like a harem. And I said, I'll be part of your harem. I don't want anything except to make out with you for like hours and hours. Mm -hmm. And then there was another younger man I dated and I was voracious at this point. And one day he was like, why do you always want to have sex with me? And I was like, I don't know. I just do. And I just kind of wanted to say, could you just be quiet? Like, just we just do this, this. Is all I want to do. <laughs> and I think he was just so surprised by it. And so anyway, I guess I gave myself permission to explore safely, of course. And I always let my sisters know like where I was. And each encounter did end up feeling like a life lesson that was leading me someplace. And I didn't know what, and then came the being swept up by the guy that we were in the co you knew all about that guy. I knew that story. So, Yeah, right, exactly. Um, so anyway, can you talk about what's happening right now when it comes to the changing old notions of relationship? And that doesn't mean like the old notions should go away. They're still available, but the exploration of other forms of relationship and expressions of our sexuality. And I'm guessing that when we're talking about polyamory, Um, you know, probably 90% of people have no knowledge, little knowledge, or the knowledge they have is probably misguided. And um, maybe you could give us some background and talk a little bit about that. But then also for those who this might resonate with, Maybe send them that you could send them to you and your website for sure. But maybe some suggestions for how can they start exploring the notion and the concept if it if it feels like it's resonating with them? Yeah,
1: that's a great place to start. Let's actually start from there. I'm going to describe to you a, a way of relating that might sound unfamiliar, but I want to invite you into a a really delicious fact. I keep using the word delicious because this is such a good mm-hmm. topic for me, and that is that. About 5% of Americans are in a consensually non-monogamous relationship at any one time. And about 20% have tried it at some point. Mm. That's roughly the same number of people as who have cats or play musical instruments. Mm. So while this is a misunderstood concept, you already know someone who has tried this out. And so even if it's not for you, just just taking a listen and opening your mind to, oh, this is a thing. This is a, this is a real way people are in the world. You might find that you can glean something valuable. And when I, when I hear people just tipping their head and saying, oh, you know what? There's something interesting in there for me. It's often not because they want to dive in head first and say to hell with monogamy. I'm done. It's not that because there's nothing wrong with monogamy. Monogamy works really well for some people so does polyamory and we don't often hear the stories when it works really well because many people are afraid that they will be marginalized that they will be punished Mm. that they will be discriminated against so the good stories of polyamory non-monogamy even swinging often happen behind closed doors and you never hear a word about them Mm. so now, what are we really talking about, though? This is actually a whole host of kinds of relationships. So if we take the umbrella of non-monogamy and we say non-monogamy is any anything where we're not having one exclusive sexual partner. Okay, cool. Most people who are monogamous at this point are having a series, at the very least, a series of mm-hmm. sexual partners over the course of their life, possibly even a series of marriage partners over the course of a life. That's very normalized. Um, So in a way, consider the fact that polyamory is just about more loves, many loves, right? Many loves and non-monogamy is just all Mm -hmm. the other forms of relating. Swinging for instance is really about polysexuality, having multiple sexual partners, but it's not so much about creating intimate love bonds with those people. Whereas polyamory is more about creating those intimate love bonds and might not even involve sex because Mm -hmm. asexual people, can be polyamorous too. So, when we're talking about non-monogamy, I like to think about friendship. Mm. Most of us have multiple friends. Most people are used to the idea that it's normal to have even multiple best friends. We put that mm. that word best, which is a superlative and seems like it would mean we'd have just one of them. Most of us have more than one best friend, especially if we're a little older mm-hmm. and we've had multiple phases of our lives. And these people don't lose value to us when we, as we move in and out of different intensities of relationship. Polyamory non-monogamy is really just about expanding our idea around what is in a relationship. So perhaps it could include erotic energy. Perhaps it does include sexual, literally sexual connection. And perhaps it's entirely negotiated based on the people in all of the related, like, it's messy, right? It's messy. Mm -hmm. You have to negotiate with your partners. You have to negotiate with yourself. What are your own boundaries? You have to be able to get clear about what your boundaries are. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a messy description. And I could give a tighter one, but maybe, maybe it's best to just understand that it's not one thing. It's actually going to be complicated. When people are considering whether they want non-monogamy if it's like resonating, if it's like pinging, it might be because they feel a lack in their current relationship. They feel like something's missing. And I think that's where a lot of people start to notice like, oh, maybe I want something more. They notice a lack and they're like, oh, I think I want something more. And often that more is about sex. There's nothing wrong with that but i always say slow down and breathe because there are things to learn first and they have to do with boundaries and creating agreements and most importantly getting clear on what it is that you actually want more of in your life because i know you experienced something similar to what i did which is i wanted more me i wanted, <laughs> wanted more of myself and just continuing to add more partners often blotted that out mm-hmm. i actually needed to be more discerning and careful so even though at any one time i might have three or four partners I need to be really cautious to also make time for my relationship to myself, especially that capital S self. Not to mention my seven children, but you know, it's non-monogamy isn't just one thing, and it's always going to be personal. I think that's
0: really helpful, and I just learned something because I think I I did, I, and I never really took apart the word polyamory and realized that a more <laughs> is the basis of polyamory is that it's about love and what the difference is between swinging and polyamory. And that polyamory could be, like you said, could have nothing to do with sex, but just a different expression or experience of love than you get from one person. And if you think about how much we project onto our partner, that they're supposed to meet all of those
1: needs, it's not fair. It's also very modern. It's such a new idea. The idea that we'll just have one person who meets all those needs, right? 150 years old tops.
0: Yeah, like it's like we want them to be a God or a goddess, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember this one thing as my marriage was falling apart and there was addiction involved and things like that. But I remember starting to, um, I just remember it. there was coming this moment when I had to make a choice. And I remember my- my husband saying, you know, you really should find some people to talk about that stuff with. (laughs) And I knew that, oh, I could do that. But I felt that meant that that was the beginning of, you know, the too much distance for us to, to remain together. And our relationship was actually healthy in a way that we did have like these other people in our lives. It wasn't sexual, but it was intellectual or, or it was, it was whatever. And and in the end it didn't, you know, it, the relationship had to end anyway, but it's really interesting to just take what's already happening in your relationship and just look at it in a different way. Like somebody might be really offended by that remark from their husband. Like you really need some other friends to talk to. But really what he was saying was, you're really passionate about that. I'm trying to hang in there with you, but it's just really hard for me. And it's okay if you go have some other relationships to get that sort of need met. So, yeah, I love this. And and, it, and you didn't go too deep. And I think that's great because I think it's a great way for people to just go, huh, look at their what they're experiencing right now in a different way, and then it might be about sex or it might not be, or you might think it's about sex, but because we, we misunderstand our own messages from our soul, Mm -hmm. because again, we don't have this framework, you know, to consider the symbolic and the metaphorical. So I think this is really super helpful too. Um, Recently, you put something out there about the sexual shadow. Could you talk about that and what you're doing with that?
1: Yeah. So I've been teaching on this concept of the sexual shadow for the past couple of years, and it's really starting to take full form now. Um, so it's a pretty simple idea, really. I studied I, I, I studied what Jung had to say about sex. I had to, to contextualize, just like mm-hmm. you did, to contextualize my dissertation. And now the studies I'm doing now, currently, but what Jung left in his own, what was in Jung's personal shadow um, I mean, we all, we can read about it, right? He had multiple love partners. We know. I So I had this inkling way back when I was starting my dissertation that since Jung had very little to say about anything about multiple love, but he had lots to say about passion and about following one's soul, that there was something mm-hmm. there. And it wasn't so much in the collective shadow. Like it, it it was personal. He was omitting the fact that he had experience with multiple loves. And I found a few references and I cited all of the ones that I could find where he, he hinted at the fact that he knew this was in his shadow. He knew it was in his personal shadow. And so what I've been doing is using this concept of the sexual shadow as not the sexual shadow that our culture takes sex and jams the whole thing into the shadows, Mm -hmm. which it does, but I think increasingly we are pulling parts Mm -hmm. of that back out into awareness. But each of us through the shame we felt when we were children or what we were indoctrinated with or through things that our partners have said to us over the years, we take, or through fantasies we can't tolerate Mm -hmm. that frighten us, we take parts of our sexual self and we shove it into our personal shadow unconsciously. Now it's back there in that unconscious space And I can't think of a more fruitful, useful place to draw life force from than to pull forward pieces of that shadowy sexual energy and not try to literalize them, but instead to use them as instructive. What what does my soul want from me? Now, I wrote a paper about orgasmic imagination and that kind of is, there is a literalness to it. It's about um, the concept of orgasmic imagination is that one can intentionally masturbate and lean into a fantasy of other, a fantasy that really takes them into their shadowy areas and just see, much like an act of imagination, what arrives, be in dialogue with the figures that arrive. But mostly when we talk about sex and depth psychology, we talk about it in these big, this big cultural container. So this really, the whole notion of sexual shadow and the way I'm using it is, What's in yours? What's right at the edge of your conscious and unconscious, right in that zone where something's ready to burst forward? Like you said, you gave an example, a great example. Fifty Shades of Grey had something for you. It had something. And, And Psyche was able to present you this image, right, that was somehow tolerable because while everybody was reading it, right? So, okay, now I can tolerate coming a little closer to this image. What's in there? Is it about submission? Is it about impact? Is it about roles? Is it about power? Allowing yourself to bring more of that into your consciousness. It's not a, you don't have to literalize it, but you get to know more of yourself. And then your sexual shadow can be both still yummy and we can still play with it in a sexual way, but also we can, defang the shame and allow ourselves to enjoy more of our fantasy and know more of ourselves.
0: Yeah. And I love how you bring up um, tolerable because, and it, and I think what might be helpful for people is that when a fantasy comes up, you know, we don't ask for fantasies. They just come up. They come up from our unconscious come that if you think about it as, Oh, this is a message. It's in code, the language of the unconscious, which means it's not literal. That person in the fantasy, it's really more about a part of me, not them. And if I can just put it over there a little bit and look at it, and then also assume that my psyche is meaning to be helpful. It's actually not meaning to harm me. And then also say, oh, what does it want for me? How can I relate to it? that this does make it more tolerable. And one of the things, or one of the um, people uh, included in my research resources was Dr. Ann Ulanoff. I don't know if you ever came across her, but I I love her book, Picturing God, because she is um, Christian. She is a Christian theologian, and she's a Jungian, and she validates our images of God, which can come in the form of sexual fantasies and obsession. So again, going back to the not conflating that this is something literal that I want. And that's what I came to understand. But again, I had like this benefit of knowing there is something deeper going on. Yeah. Maybe there is a little literalness and yeah, there was actually, it can be both. (laughs) Yeah, it was definitely, it was definitely, um, both. So Uh, that's great. I I got one more question. Um, I'm wondering about your take on the, Oh, this is just kind of continuing the conversation on the symbolic nature of sexuality and sexual energy. And I talked a little bit about, you know, being plagued with this fantasy of being submissive, Mm -hmm. but only sexually, Mm -hmm. of course, I didn't want to be submissive in any other way. And I was curious about it literally, you know, but I, uh, but I knew there was more to it. And, you brought up active imagination. So uh, for those who aren't really uh, familiar with that, it's really just taking a message from our unconscious and allowing our unconscious to run with it, knowing that our unconscious again is trying to be helpful. So let's just see where imagination takes us. And drawing that fantasy really helped me process it. And even the act of drawing was awkward, man. First of all, I'm not a good artist. So I was Googling, how do you draw a naked man with an erect penis? I found a little picture and I drew it. Okay. How do you draw a kneeling naked woman?
1: <laughs> right. Not simple things to draw, no, by No, the they're
0: not. So, you know, you have to get over your little inner artist complex uh, and bring that child part of you out. Cause it's not about, you know, art, but that, that led to these other amazing experiences. So once I like kind of process that and put it on the page, my fantasy still was very active and it was torturing me. Actually, it was following me around. I'm like, oh my God, give me a break, please. And, but at the same time, this was a time when I couldn't be intimate with that guy that I was swept up with, I, I, I couldn't, and it was good because now really what that was, that submission fantasy was about submitting to feeling vulnerable and surrendering to myself and these awkward experiences. And I began meditating in the morning and doing some praying, which I hadn't really done before. And more images of like chalices and bowls and very spiritual images came up. And then the day came when, when I was most open. And I, I kind of had this moment where I'm like, fine. I'm surrendering it all to you, whoever you are, whether it was the self or God or whatever, because I've got a control complex. And when I had that surrendering moment, I felt I was overcome by arousal that was sexual. And I came to not actually be able to tell the difference between spirituality and sexuality Mm -hmm. in those moments. And I had several experiences of that. Then that led to it. Like it was leading me someplace and the drawing and the act of imagination was a way for me to process what I couldn't articulate in words. But as Dr. Alan Ulanoff was saying, you got to explore it. There's something, there's something in that. And in the end, I came into stronger relationship with that part of myself that also transcends me. So it might be God for some people, or creative intelligence, or or whatever, or whatever it was. So, so anyway, anything else that you have to add about just sort of that, like, you know, sexual energy? Oh my gosh, you can't pin it down. Like you said, even asking what is sex? will now ask what's sexual energy?
1: Right. <laughs> Talk about getting deep. Right. <laughs> and into a place that there is no answer. All there is is what you can can bring up now and, and somehow communicate to another. And even so it's it's transient, it will change. Um, I think the piece that would be interesting to add is that, so I also teach, um, I'm part of the kink community and I teach BDSM um, in a couple of different places. Specifically, I, I teach people who are becoming sex educators, sex therapists, that's the, the context. And one of the things that we need to establish very early on is that many people will come to see us um, and they'll want information. Maybe they'll have looked at pornography. Maybe they'll have um, had a fantasy that's plagued them for days, weeks, months, years, decades. And they're obsessed with it on the one hand, or they find themselves compelled by it. They feel it's overwhelming nature, which tells us it's archetypal, right? If it's overwhelming... Mm -hmm. There we go. We've got a a clue, but they also have this profound imagination that it's directly to do with acting it out, that they have to act it out. And I love kink. I think it's great. And just because I have the capacity to act something out even doesn't mean I have to. And some of the most beneficial And profound experiences I've had were actually about simply talking out a fantasy, explaining it, expressing it, giving it language, drawing it, um, putting it into a symbolic container, perhaps um, in a shared room, like in a dungeon or in a play space, Mm -hmm. right? I I bring it out into the adult playground where everyone involved has consented and I let it have space, but I don't necessarily literalize it. And the reason this is important is some of the things that we fantasize about—they've—they've gone to extreme lengths, and they may even be dangerous for us. You know, say breath play can be incredibly dangerous, but just because you you have a fantasy about choking or being choked doesn't mean you need to take it to an extreme to experience all of the really profound growth and. The, the, the sexual energy, right? You can experience the tension. So I think that the lesson from depth psychology of deliteralizing is fantastic. And it's a great place to start if you have any sort of shadowy, kinky, or just divergent um, stuff you want to explore. But I would take it a, a layer further and say that idea that we don't have to literalize it. What if we play? What if we put it into a play space? What if we literally say, this is my adult erotic imagination bringing me something it wants to play with? What if I simply entertain it and I don't judge it and I just entertain it? And there are layers, there's graduated risk layers. First, I can entertain it myself in my own masturbatory Mm -hmm. experiences. I could perhaps then um, draw it or, or make it real in another way. I might share it with a skilled facilitator. I might share it with a partner. It just in fantasy, again, still just in fantasy, all in language or just in drawings, expressive arts. And then I might go to the step of maybe I want to watch someone do this. Now, maybe I want to participate. Mm-hmm. How could I do that safely? And no matter what it is that's your, got your imagination, there are people out there who can teach you to do it safely. So there's this whole range of possibility. If you start from that, let's not take it literally but then let's let ourselves play with it.
0: Oh, I really love that because I think, I think there's like two ranges of responses to fantasies that come up like that. People who rush to literalize it, who may hurt themselves or someone else in the process and people who are shamed by the very Thought they think they're having choosing to have this fantasy. And what you've done is you've like, you've given this sort of process to explore. And like you said, I really like the word play, even journaling. It can be huge for somebody who feels shame about a fantasy. And maybe journaling for somebody who just is feeling really overwhelmed by it. And this may be someone who's in a committed relationship and they're having, and even just like writing it down may help, you know, just may help in the exploration and shift the energy. And because our psyche wants something from us, but we, we don't know right away what the psyche wants. And if we rush it, we're not learning the thing that we're supposed to learn.
1: And we may actually miss some of the fun. So I, mm-hmm. I'm a kingster. I like to play, but when I rush into a situation, I often don't set myself up for success to actually enjoy the experience. Maybe I don't find the right partner to explore this with. Maybe I don't like. I don't give myself the time to really gather it and also to anticipate. When you're in that dating phase, one of the most fascinating parts about sex is that we allow ourselves to anticipate it. We, we set a date and then we, we amp up toward the date and then we prepare for the date and then we go on the date and we spend time and then maybe there's sex during it. Right. The same with any sort of shadowy fantasy. If you can allow yourself to stay in the spot where you anticipate it, imagine into it, let it teach you. And then also know that as long as you're not harming yourself or others, there is a broad range of what will work. And it's all normal. We just have to find the healthy expression of it. And I don't mean healthy in some sort of pathological way. I mean, literally physically healthy. How can we keep you healthy while exploring these really fun fantasies?
0: And I love the notion of sustained arousal. And one of the most amazing parts of my, that swept up relationship was this irony of it. And after a couple of months when I was like, why isn't he like making a move on me other than making out, which was, oh, amazing. But I was like, I had to ask, like, I would like you in me. Can we do that? And he, and it happened once. And then all of a sudden he was like, um, I have to tell you something. I have this conflict having sex outside of marriage. And I was like, what, how can you do that to me? I'm just finding my healthy sexuality. But what was interesting is I explored the world of no sex, sex, which There is a lot of intimacy and sexuality without the literal act of penetration.
1: I don't know any lesbians who are sad about that. (laughs) Right. Exactly.
0: I, I never experienced this like hours and hours of exploring your body and having your body explore, exploring their body in this. I also don't want to give the impression that I'm like just all, all about staying in the symbolic. No, no, because, you know, expressing, because actually there are um, criticisms of Jung and Jungians for just conceptualizing sexual energy instead of, no, the body. If we're trying to get back to relationship with a feminine, we need to do it through the body and through sexuality because those are the things that have been denigrated over time. So, no, the literal sexuality and arousal is really critical in relationships. So just want to make sure people aren't misunderstanding what I'm saying.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's always a yes. And always a yes. And because I mean, I'm a sex educator first and I was one first. I am never going to leave behind the physical acts of intimacy and erotic behavior. I love them.
0: (laughs) But one of the things that I think I feel is that, you know, since the eighties and I was part of it when women started claiming like, well, I can have sex and I can have sex with multiple partners or whatever it was Mm -hmm. that the missing part was the symbolic part because there was this rush to, I call it technique and quantity as opposed to like really exploring Mm -hmm. sort of the, Mm -hmm. the depth in it. And so I want women to experience what I got to experience spiritual orgasms and sustained arousal. And oh my, oh my gosh, like amazing. So I, and I feel like by appreciating the depth, that's how you actually get to expansion. I think of expressing sexuality.
1: Yeah. It is allowing yourself to stay in it long enough for it to become more than one thing more than simply, you know, Kinsey's original definition of, of sex was, you know, behavior that leads toward orgasm. It's no, and, and that's been refined so many times. And now we know that the erotic is so huge, which means we now have returned to a sense that many, many, many other cultures have held the whole time. Often we're the last ones to the party, but let's just be glad we showed up at all. Erotic is huge.
0: Yes, exactly. That is, I love that ending. Perfect. Um, This conversation has been so great. And I would love for you to tell people where they can find you, buy your book, sign up for your programs, follow you, support you. And I just want to say, I think you're doing super important work, evolving consciousness about one of the most powerful human instincts, sexuality, the other one being spirituality. And I will put all of that information down in the box under this episode.
1: Fantastic. Well, people can find me and benefit from my work on jealousy and that conversation, that dreaded conversation that will lead you to yummy places. If you want to have the what is sex conversation with either yourself or with your partners or with just a best friend, get together in a girls group and do this. You can grab my guides They're, They make it nice and simple and my guide to jealousy and a bunch of other good stuff at listen to Listen to Jolie, dot com, And you can find me on Instagram. I'm Dr. Jolie underscore Hamilton, like the musical. Nice and easy.
0: Great. Awesome. This was so juicy. The kind of conversation I love having. Awkward topic, real stories, some humor, permission to expand depth and lightness. And I want to thank you so much
1: for being here, Jolie. Thanks for having me, Deb. I really appreciate it.
0: I'm your host, Deborah Lukovich, and you are listening to Dose of Depth Podcast. To get updates on new episodes, my writing, and how I teach my clients to get to know that deeper part of themselves, go to DebraLukovic.com. Oh, and if you're not ready for a coach, learn what my clients know in my book, Your Soul is Talking. Are you listening? Five Steps to Uncovering Your Hidden Purpose. You can check it out on my website or get it on Amazon.